Kia ora, kia ora koutou katoa. I'm Bernard Hickey and this is a weekly chat that I do with Peter Bale, an old colleague of mine from Reuters and a few other places, where we look over the horizon from New Zealand and just pick out the big events of the week and talk about them. It's great to have Peter on board. Firstly, Peter, Gaza, now that's been the big event globally in the last week or so. Tell us some um, what you're seeing and what you think matters with Gaza. Well, Bernard, the main thing I've been trying to do in the last couple of weeks for, for some pieces that I've written for the spin-off in New Zealand is try and put it all in context because the it's not just the, the media's fault in this, but the, the way these these successive, you know, every five years or so conflicts with Gaza or conflicts with Hamas get portrayed, you know, it tends to go a little off a little off beam. And so the one I did this really focused on the cynicism and opportunism that you see with Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, he is an extraordinarily skilled politician. He's just lost an election or had an inconclusive election, and he's been indicted for corruption. But, you know, to take everybody's mind off that, he launches a war which, you know, makes him the saviour of Israel to some extent. And, you know, the fact that it was triggered by a kind of deliberate provocation at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem gets forgotten. And then it becomes the, you know, it, it becomes the classic sort of asymmetric conflict between what is what is essentially a, a gigantic first world military with the, some of the best weapons in the world and Hamas, which despite its support from, from Iran, you know, really is a kind of homemade, homemade guerrilla force. So although Hamas can strike terror into the hearts of Israelis as, and, and, you know, I'm not, advocating that in any means. The asymmetric nature of the conflict is extraordinary when you have the entire sophistication of the Israeli forces against you. So I, I just think sometimes it's better to try and balance these things out a little bit without getting into the some of the issues that make you make make people start to question the very existence of Israel itself, which is a problematic area to say the least. I think I think that that's one of the things possibly that Netanyahu underestimated, particularly given the, the fact that it was all triggered from Jerusalem, where effectively you've got a very hard uh, right-wing group of Israeli zealots who are absolutely determined to take over most of East Jerusalem and see that as part of their destiny. I mean, there was no no coincidence that this you know phase was triggered by attacks and, and riots and protests between right-wing Jews and some, some Palestinians in Jerusalem on what's called Jerusalem Day, which is to mark the reclaiming of Jerusalem in 1967 in the Six-Day War. You know, a reclaiming, as it were, that really is, is not really recognized by anybody else, despite the United States having agreed to move its embassy to Jerusalem. On the on the question of, of Arab Israelis, it is incredibly interesting. And, uh, you know, there's that 21% of the population are Arab Israelis, and that's living within the borders of Israel, not in the occupied territories. But, you know, they don't have the same property rights as their Jewish neighbours, and nor do they have the same property rights to reclaim property taken before before 1948, whereas, of course, Jews do. And that is that is deeply, deeply problematic ethically, I think. And that's one of the reasons why... A couple of weeks ago, Human Rights Watch produced a very controversial report describing Israel as an apartheid state. The other thing, of course, is that you have a, a higher birth rate amongst amongst Arabs, and it hasn't Arab Israelis, that is, and it hasn't escaped Netanyahu. And you know, he was he was talking in a couple of elections ago about Arabs going to the polls in droves and trying to use a kind of ethno nationalism to 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 drive Jewish Israelis to the polls. It is one of the you know one of the dreams of the some of the original Zionists like Theodore Herschel was that this Arab Arab Israeli population and, and Jewish Israelis would live in peace together in a common 
in a common uh, state, but that hasn't been the way it's worked out, you know, since the founding of Israel in 1948. The, a, a different form of Zionism has, has won. Well, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think they went as close as this. With, with, so, so, so President Obama was much more critical of Israel, had much more confrontations with Netanyahu in particular. And, and if you remember, he, he gave a speech, I think it was in Cairo, where he talked about a two-state solution and really tried to put momentum behind it. And it just didn't go anywhere, mainly because of Netanyahu. I mean, the, the thing that is true in the United States, of course, is the gigantic power of the Israeli lobby, particularly in the form of a thing called APAC, the American-Israeli, but I've forgotten what the PAC stands for, Public Affairs Public Affairs Committee, I think it is. But APAC is incredibly powerful. And in my piece this week, I mentioned a, an, a work by two academics, both of whom I think were, were Jewish, that came out in 2006, America, from people from America. And they really questioned the wisdom of having this foreign policy that they they felt was really too pro-Israeli in the sense that it was actually undermining America's own credibility. The difficulty with that, of course, is that that meant that they, they walked into the controversy that it, it essentially played into one of the historic anti-Semitic tropes, which is that the people have, Jews have divided loyalties. And, you know, that, that, that was able to be dismissed in that way. I don't think it really was a dismissible uh, argument because it was a very effective piece of academic work. But it is extremely difficult for American governments to go against that Israeli lobby. And of course, you know, Israel is an identifiable democracy in the Middle East. Well, let's look now at what's happening in the business world. The big story internationally has been the takeover or the merger, depending on how you look at it, of uh, AT&T's WarnerMedia with Discovery. Now, the reason this is relevant here is Discovery recently bought the television operations of News Hub, so TV3, and Warner, of course, is uh, behind CNN. Um, this is a deal that was done by AT&T to buy WarnerMedia a few years ago. Now, effectively, it's being undone. This is the unbundling of a uh, telco with a um, big media conglomerate. Peter, what's what's really going on here, and is this going to work at all? 
Yeah, well, it, I, I very rarely agree with that guy, Jim Cramer, who's the sort of yelling lunatic on CNBC. But, you know, the, the AT&T media acquisition of, of Warner Media, which, you know, really was one, as he put it, one of the dumbest, dumbest mergers in recent history. And it was about $85 billion, and it assembled an extraordinary collection of media assets under the AT&T brand. And AT&T, of course, is the biggest telecoms company in the States. And it just repeats a cycle that we've seen every few years of telecoms companies that are desperate to be something other than a pipe. 3G is never enough for them. 4G wasn't enough for them. There's a 5G auction going on in the States into which people have invested billions. That's where they should be going. But they keep thinking that having media assets is going to reinforce their telecoms assets, despite the evidence to the contrary. I mean, we've had this with uh, Telefonica in Spain, which became an enormous media media company at one stage. BT in the United Kingdom has bought sports rights and tried to be a media company and is now getting out of it. Vodafone has done this several several times. And maybe we could even think that Spark has some of these characteristics with the very, its various attempts to, to push media. But I, I do think, though, that having, having said that this is a terrible deal and that AT&T is destroying shareholder value, it is going to be really interesting to see what comes of Warner Discovery, as I think it's probably going to be called. I mean, it, too, brings together a remarkable collection of those kind of weird Discovery Channel reality television things with you know, some really marvellous assets like HBO and CNN. I just wonder, Peter, whether in this world of network monopolies that even uh, Warner Discovery can take on the likes of not just Disney, but also Netflix. And of course, there's Amazon lurking in, the, in there as well. Yeah, I would never I would never bet against Disney. You know, it's a well-managed and, and quite ruthless company. I, I think one of the other interesting aspects is Discovery having gone onto news. It has, apart from, apart from its news hub TV3 asset here, it is investing in uh, a kind of right-wing, a new right-wing television station and te television news service in the UK. And it has a news service in Poland. And it hasn't been something that it's really gone into in the past, but it does have these kind of nascent nascent things bubbling along. I'm, I'm sure New Zealand is the last thing on their mind at the moment, but it, it will be interesting to see whether they bring any of those brands to New Zealanders. CNN's done, done an awful lot of the creation of small local joint ventures in the Philippines, Turkey, and various other places where they've set up local versions of CNN like, oh, no, I don't think that would be impossible to do in Australasia. And we tend to we tend to think of the United States as being competitive, but it actually isn't. Because because of regulatory capture, where these these huge corporations are, you know, have essentially have both the regulator and the politicians in their pockets, the you know the competition between fibre providers and mobile providers is pathetic. There really isn't any. Mm. 
Now, the other big story um, happening overseas this week is the trade negotiations now getting to a very sticky point between the UK and Australia and New Zealand. And there's some talk that the UK may actually uh, do something extraordinary, which is essentially uh, lower their guard completely. No tariffs on meat imports from New Zealand and Australia. And as you can imagine, the uh, the lamb farmers in Wales and everyone else are up in arms. But uh, it seems that uh, Boris Johnson is so keen to get a deal, any sort of trade deal, he may actually lower those trade barriers. Is this really possible? Yeah, well, I, you know, the, the, I, I, having, having lived there a long time, there, there is an argument, of course, that all of, these, all of these English farms should really be turned into petting zoos. You know, there are superbly efficient British farms. You know, they hate factory farming and they do like to give this idea that it's all sort of, you know, bucolic, bucolic farmers in Wales and so on. But, you know, there is a serious amount of industrial farming there and also farming in pens, which rather than, you know, rather than open country. But I, I don't think that the British farming lobby has much political sway right now. I, you know, I, I, they've obviously been very badly damaged by, by Brexit, of course, as well, and the loss of the um, common agricultural policy. But I don't think politically they have sway. And of course, Britain is having great difficulty signing decent free trade or decent trade agreements with people to replace the loss of the markets closest to it. So yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Welsh farmers become literally sacrificial lambs. Now, coming back closer to home, the big story this week has been the CEO of ByteDance, which you probably haven't heard of, but is the uh, parent company for TikTok. And this is the first Chinese social media uh, company that's really had big success overseas. It's huge in China. But the CEO has flown too close to President Xi Jinping's son and has been uh, 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 shuffled aside. Um, this reinforces... The um, problem or the issue where Chinese communists, China's Communist Party um, sees itself as top dog in China, and even if you're a, um, a big swinging tech CEO, you can't survive that close to President Xi Jinping. We've seen Alibaba's Jack Ma um, have to step down after he criticised um, the government, and now we have the CEO of ByteDance going. Uh, Peter, it's a... Tough place to be, um, a tech CEO in China. Yeah, well, there's, there's another one, Bernard, that I rather like in this case, um, other than the guy from ByteDance. Food delivery in China is absolutely gigantic. And one of the, one of the biggest companies is called MetaOne. Its, it's, its chief executive posted a sarcastic poem or a, a sort of politically critical poem from a thousand years ago about the Tang Dynasty, which was immediately seen as a criticism of President Xi Jinping, and and the poem was you know is a, is a is a sort of allegorical poem about the lack of intelligence of an almighty leader. So so Metawan's Metawan's shares have fallen dramatically, and I think we can expect Metawan to not to not benefit from uh, critic, apparently criticizing President Xi. Now, on the global tech front, uh, we all remember that ransomware um, shutdown of America's fuel network, at least on the East Coast, a couple of weeks ago. Well, now it emerges that the company involved looks to have paid a ransom. 
I remember um, a, a conference I hosted in Sydney a couple of years ago where we had a, a gruff old uh, former um, New South Wales cop who was now a cybercrime consultant um, just quietly telling the audience that what they needed to do was make sure they had a few Bitcoin on hand for the inevitable ransomware attack, attack and a way to pay for it. Um, Peter, this is quite the thing. Yeah. On the other hand, Bernard, if you're if you're running a, if you're running a ransomware company or ransomware operator from somewhere inside Russia, it seems as though you can get paid four million dollars to 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 give the data back to a U.S. pipeline company. I wonder what's happening in Waikato. That's right, uh, the Waikato DHB dealing with a, a similar ransomware attack, it seems. And what will our government do? Um, will it allow the DHB to pay a ransom? Um, that's one way to spend your health health budget. Yeah, very wise. Yeah, I, I think also there's, there's you, know, you need some kind of backups somewhere along the line, some other, you know, you need, you need a business continuity plan. Indeed. Hey, Peter Bale, thank you very much. That was the news over the horizon from New Zealand. Talk again next week.